Welcome to the Realized Gains Podcast, a guide to real estate investing. Join our co-hosts, Jordan Lee and Stephen Tran, as we interview a diverse group of real estate investors, both amateur and professional. Our goal is to help you understand that anyone can invest in real estate. Tune in to hear creative strategies and learn from both our mistakes and our successes. You can find us where you love to listen to podcasts, on YouTube, or at jordanleemortgage.com. Hey guys, welcome to episode 10 of the Portland Real Estate Investing Podcast. I'm Stephen Tran. And I'm your co-host Jordan Lee. Yeah, and for this episode, we had a really special guest. Who's that special guest? Yeah. <laughs> so we actually had Jordan on. I know we haven't really heard of his story, um, but he has a really interesting career path. Uh, he went from being a professional chef to now, uh, you know, uh, Portland's renowned mortgage lender. That's right. Yeah, and uh, we got to hear how he got into investing. Uh, I know that you started with your first primary residence, uh, and then you turned it into a rental. Yeah, I turned it into a rental, and I, I took a home equity line of credit, so I felt like I was buying my dream house or my current house without putting any money down. Yeah, you existed that uh, existing equities, which was really cool. Uh, you also gave us some insight uh, on that your very first tenant was Section 8, you know, which can be really scary for a lot of people. Yeah, and she's still my tenant now. Yeah, and, uh, you know, kind of brings down the, what's the word, uh, you know, the stigma on Section yeah. 8, which is, you know, actually not too bad. And yep. then, uh, you know, with your next investment, you tell us a little bit about renting to a nonprofit, uh, Oxford Homes, which you'll, you'll hear a little bit more about later. Yeah, tune into the episode to check that out. Okay, thanks, guys. Hey, guys, welcome to episode 10 of the Portland Real Estate Investing Podcast. I'm here with my special co-host, Alex Fan. And we're interviewing today Jordan Lee, our original and normal co-host. <laughs> hey, Jordan, how's it going? Great. Thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, I, I thought today would be a really good opportunity to kind of hear your story. You know, I know we we interview a lot of interesting people, but you know, obviously we're in an investing podcast, and we want to learn a little bit more about our co-hosts. So, can you tell us a little bit about uh, yourself and your journey? Sure. Um, I don't know where you where you want to get started, but. Uh, from the very, very yeah, beginning, from, from the top, from kindergarten. You know. <laughs> no, no. Uh, how about just you kind of just tell us where you're at right now. We can kind of get into how you got there. Um, sure. Yeah. So I, I'm a mortgage lender. I'm licensed in, I guess, twelve states now. Um, and I started, I guess, back in in 2016. So it's been it's been six years, and um, you know, the first few years were a lot of building, and at that it probably took three years to become more of a stable business. And then once I got to that point, I was able to finally start investing, which was kind of part of the whole original plan of, of why I got into mortgage and real estate. Okay. And can you kind of give us a look into what your portfolio looks like right now? Uh, sure. Yeah. So um, it's not expansive, <laughs> um, but it, and it's all single family. So I, I purchased a home in 2012. That was Let's see, that time I was working as a cook making, I think, $12 an hour. And uh, back in 2012, you know, home, homes in, in Portland, there was, you could still buy stuff in like the 150 to 200 range that was, that was like pretty nice, you know, three, three twos, four twos, 
Um, and, and like mine was built in 2007. There's, I mean, there's no, no yard or anything. Um, and just so everyone's good, I think this is your first primary residence, right? First primary residence. Exactly. Yeah. First home, first purchase, um, back in 2012. And, um, it, yeah, so in that time, you know, things were a little bit more affordable and rates were pretty good too, I think in the mid threes. Uh and and my grandma had recently passed away. Um and so and so my parents were like, Hey, you know, you guys just got married. Do you do you wanna like wait until we die to get your grandma's inheritance or do you wanna take your portion now for a down payment on a home? Like it wasn't it wasn't on my radar at all. You know, I was just had my head down and I was cooking the line, just making enough money to pay rent, right? So I wasn't, I wasn't like thinking about, I mean, I was saving money for retirement, but I was, wasn't thinking about buying a house at the time. And I was like, I'm, okay, I guess I'll buy a house. Sure, why not? So I took that, um, you know, used that as the down payment and bought a home back in 2012. Um, and then, yeah, fast forward eight years later, was able to um, leverage the equity on that home to use as a, I took a home equity line of credit to use as a down payment for my current home, um, my current primary. And so I converted my old home into a rental and there was enough equity in there for the down payment, as I was saying, but there was also the rents had increased enough uh, that I was able to pay both my first, and, that I'm able to pay both my first and second mortgage with with that rent payment. Um, and, and I was able to like, I don't know, it felt like I was cheating, right? So that's cash flowing. And I didn't, I didn't put any money down on the home that I'm in right now, essentially. So, mm -hmm. and I'd always like, this was kind of my long-term plan from the beginning. I'd always wanted to do that. Um, and I, you know, kind of told clients about this strategy and, and talked to them about it, but it didn't really become clear to me until I actually did it, that it was a, you know, that's a, it's a great method because now that asset's still growing on the side. So that's, that's the first rental that I got. Um, and then I, you know, in 2020 and 2021, uh, for those of us in real estate, it was a pretty strong year. It was really fortunate to have um, uh, a little extra income that year. So I, I took some of that and invested with a partner. Uh, we bought two rentals together. So we're both half owners and we're both on, on, on the loan on those. And um, both of those are just single family homes that we're renting to nonprofits and to a nonprofit and um that those both kind of cash flow and they're just kind of sitting there yeah can you talk about that a little bit more like what uh nonprofit and how does that work yeah so um the, the nonprofit's called oxford home and it's it's really great they so they sign uh, a five-year lease um and they they have built-in rent increase into it uh i mean the amount of rent rent increase in in hindsight is uh I think lower than what market is now. I think what did we just see that? Yeah. The, uh, so uh, on hot off the presses in Oregon, uh, they just announced this morning that looking forward to next year, land, Oregon residential landlords can increase rents to a maximum of just about fourteen percent. Just a little hair over that. Fourteen percent. This is for twenty twenty three for the year twenty twenty three because the rule is what CPI plus right seven or something exactly consumer price index plus a margin of seven percent and also only applies to properties that are fifteen years or older. Okay. Fifteen years and older. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, our our built in agreement is three percent, which we're we're happy with, and we you know we don't have to change the tenant for five years. Um, and and what Oxford Homes does is they 
you know, they provide homes for people that need a second chance. You know, they've gone, people that have gone through addiction treatment, um, you know, are out of prison or whatever. And we, um, and so then they house them and, and it helps them kind of get back on their feet while they're, you know, getting, getting jobs and, and staying sober. And, uh, so it's, it's a great opportunity for them. I mean, they pay above market rent. So it's kind of a, in my opinion, a sort of win-win scenario for everyone. Okay. And in those situations, do they also manage or take care of the maintenance or what are their responsibilities? Since this is more, it sounds like a, a corporate type lease. Yeah. So it's not triple net in the, in the commercial sense where it's like they do everything right. Um, this is supposedly, you know, they're supposed to take care of all the little stuff. So like everything under $500 is written into the contract. Um, uh, but you know, if the, if the roof were to need repairing or, or a furnace or, you know, something, some big ticket item like that, we would be responsible for taking care of that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So to recap, I, I heard that your, your first rental property was your first home that you bought. Yeah. And primary not- conversion. Exactly. Yeah. So a lot of things I mentioned that I always tell clients, your first investment is the home you own. Like what, sometimes as a real estate agent, I'm talking to clients who are looking to buy rental, like have you considered just buying a new home for yourself and converting yours? It's true. And I, and I see that a lot in the media recently these days about people, you know, influencers saying, Oh, like, yeah, I'm never going to buy a home. I'm just going to rent all my life. And I'm just going to move around here and rent here and rent here. And I'm like, well, I mean that for some people with a specific lifestyle, maybe, but for, I, I think for the average person, if you, it's, just, it's the easiest way, right? You buy, you buy a primary home, um, you build equity in it, and after whatever three, five, ten, however your income cycle looks like, you you buy a second one and then convert this one into a rental, and it cash flows. Mm-hmm. It's a great way of of building a retirement po- portfolio, and in the easiest way, in my opinion. And as a renter, just to follow up on that that rent increase we talked about, when you're buying a home, you're you're locking in a fixed rate for thirty years. Right, and so you you're, you're hedged against any potential rent increases to yourself. It's not forever, right? Jordan didn't stay in that home forever, and now he used all that appreciation he gained and and everything else. He's leveraging it. He took a, a home equity line of credit out, so no additional funds out, and you're able to buy your new home and maintain that. That's amazing. Yeah, and I always say like kind of worst case scenario you know, you can, you have options, right? You can, you can sell it or you can, you know, sell portions of your portfolio or convert them all to rentals or, you know, you know, mm-hmm. what I like about that is it just gives you options. Yeah. Wow. Your, your grandmother must be very pleased in heaven right now. <laughs> what you've done. That's amazing, Jordan. Yeah. I, I, I hope she's, she's happy with the way we use the money. So. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, think, think about the impacts generationally that has and what she was able to leave for you guys to be able to, to, to benefit from. And now with, you know, our wits, we, we've applied that and leveraged it and built more. And, and Jordan, if you didn't know, has, you know, three children. So <laughs> 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 this is going to be looking forward down for them, right? Helping them out. Yeah, I got. It's like the old mentality, and at least in my my parents and our gender family's gender, it's like got to have a place where the kids can live, right? So my dad's always, you know, he wanted to pay off the mortgage. He'd be like, you know, no matter what, you guys will have a place to place to live. So that's that's the goal is to make sure that the kids, you know, no matter what happens, they have some place to live. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. And I kind of wanted to go back to the Oxford Health yeah. model. Uh, you know, like 
is there anything that you know people should be concerned about with this model? I know that people can be wary of you know putting you know people who need a second chance in there. Have you had any? Problems? Yeah, no, that's I mean that's a good question because you, if you use that word halfway home and I and I had this when I when I told the loan officer I was like getting a halfway I was he was asking me like oh what's the rent you're getting on this like why are you guys buying a rental here when we because we also bought one in South Dakota and he's like oh you guys are putting a halfway home in that neighborhood and I'm like. Yeah, you know, it's it's a a group of of people, six to eight people that um that are are, are that need a second chance, and uh, so people worry that you know the their your home's gonna have problems. Personally, we we haven't had any. Um, you know, we've only owned it for two years now, uh, but you know, I try and go and visit once a year and bring by like a a Christmas gift type thing and. I usually talk to the guys and, and last time I was there, one of the guys was like, oh man, like you have no idea how much this was life-changing for us just to be able to be kind of off the street. And that was like really all that I needed to be able to get my mind right and to be able to work, work a regular job. Um, so I, you know, I think there is a lot of kind of that mindset of like, oh, the home's going to get trashed. Yeah. But, um, you know, the Oxford Home is a very reputable organization. Um, and you know, they, they, they vet the, their people, they go through programs. Uh, and, and of course, you know, there is going to be more use on the home than I would say if you had, uh, one standard tenant that was there for, you know, 15 years. Right. Yeah. But at, so there's more people using the, the bathrooms and coming in and out, but at the same time, you're probably not moving in and out a bunch of big furniture too. So if you if you have a single family rental that is tr- turning people, you know, you're renewing a lease every year or two, you might have people banging around furniture every year or two too that could cause that. That's kind of like the main structural internal damage, I would say as well. So okay, and uh, so Ox- the Oxford House they pay you just like one flat rate every single month, you- and there's just like a lot of turnover with all the rooms. Is that how it works? Yeah, exactly. So the Oxford Homes they take care of um, cycling out the individual tenants, and so we just get a check from whoever's. Usually, there's like a senior person that's lived in the the home for a few years or are kind of running it that that takes care of mailing the check. Okay. Great. Yeah. And I mean, like, I'm glad that you're, we're kind of tackling this stigma of, you know, obviously, you know, halfway houses, section eight, um, you know, things like oh, that. Oh yeah. That's actually my tenant, um, in my, my first primary, my first rental is a section eight tenant as well, which is kind of interesting stigma too. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Let's just for our audience who aren't familiar with what section eight is, could you go into it? explanation yeah so um section eight folks uh for example this this tenant of mine has uh has a disability um so she gets uh payment from from the county for every month she gets a benefit for her disability a a voucher for housing basically um and it's it's really well it's in my opinion i thought it was pretty well vetted so what happened was that you know we had a contract between the tenant and I and section eight looked at that tenant. So they wanted to make sure they had a, a set rule about how much the rent could be. So I'm a little bit under market on that house. I'm not like, you know, the maximizing my profit on that house for sure. Um, so because they want it to be con- deemed or considered affordable. Yeah. Uh, and then they also send out an inspector 
that will like make sure that things are to go to code and um, you know that the number of bedrooms because they base the calculations on number of bedrooms and it's kind of interesting because I, I learned a hard lesson. Uh, long story short is that like the tenant was asking me, she's like, hey, um, is it all right if I put some carpet in the garage because you know my she had, she her her disability is that her leg she had a leg injury so she can't navigate stairs really well um so she wanted to be able to have a room downstairs and i'm like oh yeah <laughs> like i don't mind you putting carpet in the garage but i also don't want you to like sleep and live in the garage <laughs> so so i was like okay what if i like renovate the garage convert it into like you know a room and and it would the win-win for me was like, okay, if I can make it a five bedroom instead of a four bedroom, then I can increase section eight, what the payout will be. Cause the affordability level on a four bedroom is different than a five bedroom. Right. Um, and, and so I was like, okay, let's, I got a contractor. They did great work. They, and then section eight did their inspection and, um, I didn't wall off the furnace. And, and so like that room wasn't considered a legitimate bedroom because it wasn't completely walled off, even though there's, you know, carbon monoxide detector or whatever, um, closet, wind windows, everything. Uh, but yeah, so long story short, it was still considered a fourth bed. So I, I I I just did the renovation and I didn't get the, get my win out of it. She got her win out of it, which is fine, which is good. I mean, I, I mostly did it because I felt bad having someone sleeping in, an uninsulated garage. Um, but yeah, it's just a long story short is that I think section eight does a good job of, you know, vetting the place, making sure it's a good living spot, making sure it's affordable. Um, and then they also, you know, if the tenant doesn't like pay or, you know, it doesn't keep the house nice, they're not going to keep giving them that benefit. You, you know what I mean? They're like, they're going to cut them off from that benefit. So it, they kind of follow up on that. And then as from a landlord perspective, I don't ever ask my tenant for rent. I just get a direct deposit in my account from the county on the same day every month, which is really nice. Um, you know, sometimes, you know, people pay by check or what, whatever, or, you know, you have to ask them for a Venmo. Or, <laughs> I don't know how you, you guys all do your stuff, but um, sometimes that accounting part is yeah. is like the worst part when you have multiple rentals, but that one's by far the easiest to manage because it just, it comes in a direct deposit Doesn't in the county. Does the um, uh, tenant in the Section 8 scenario have to make a contribution to rent as well? Like, so the state or county That's subsidizes true. and they are responsible for a portion? That's true. And I do collect that portion separately from her. That's that's a good point. Uh, and in my case, the tenant, she's, she's great. She signed a three-year lease and uh, she, she actually always pays it pretty far in advance. Um, she's really good at, um, identifying programs that can help her from, from the County and from the city and from the state. So she just like applies for that and then sends it over and prepays for like the year basically. Awesome. Yeah. And you said section eight, they do, uh, or the County or whoever the housing authority is, they do annual inspections or how frequently do they inspect the, you know, I don't property? think they do. I, I don't know. They, they came out right before when we were negotiating the contract and, and setting everything up, but they haven't come out since, okay. but I do have to notify them like 90 days in advance for a rent increase. Um, even though it's like built into the contract. So. So you're doing like quarterly checkups every once in a while, just kind of popping out there? Or? 
I, you know, I I go out there like around Christmas time, drop something off. Yeah. Um, I think I've go and trim the tree <laughs> once a year, <laughs> just because that thing is like a, a a decorative plum that grows like crazy, but nothing nothing too crazy. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. No, I mean, I think this is a great story of you know, obviously Section Eight kind of working out. You know, like I said, a lot of people really are scared of taking tenants that are in Section Eight, thinking that hey, maybe these tenants won't be responsible or they won't have the care that, you know, like a, a paying tenant might have. Um, but I'll say this is that, you know, you can get a bad tenant who, you know, is qualified too. So oh, yeah. it just happened to me. So, you know, like sometimes it's good to have like that guaranteed money coming in, especially when they do check in and make sure that everything is up to code. Yeah. And, and, and like, I don't think they want to mess up that benefit, you know, if, yeah, yeah. they can, right. they can, they can lose, lose it. That. They can lose it. Right. Hmm. Interesting. Where do you see Jordan uh, now that you've um, you know got these homes? What's your what's your kind of f- vision of the future for investing? Yeah. So I I mean I'm kind of like the I don't always I don't set like the the moon goal. I usually set the goal of like okay let's achieve this one. I know I can achieve this at some point. I just don't know when. Um, so right now what I what I'd really like to see is to have the portfolio be like fully sustainable, right? Um, it, it, when to me that means like, you know, all the, I mean, they're cash flowing. I've been able to recoup all the initial investment um, and then be able to reinvest without having to pull from like my own personal savings, right? So, like, basically, if you think about a business, right, you want to, as a business, you want to be able to reinvest in yourself, you want to be able to reinvest in your employees, you want to be, you don't want to have to keep getting money from investors, right? You you want to be able to just right. using your own cash flow to keep going. Yeah. So that's kind of my, my thought is to, like, that's step one, is to get, have, be invested in to the point where it can um, just sustain itself, Um and that way, it'll just continue to slowly grow over time. And what what I think that looks like is um, having enough cash flow to produce a down payment for you know another property every like you know year, year year to year and a half. So some something where it'll it'll be able to keep growing, um, and and then you know eventually over time kind of consolidate and refine. Um, but that that's kind of my current mindset for that uh and that and just to eventually be able to of course offset all my my personal expenses as well okay i want to ask different what um what made you uh want to partner on these second and third investments rather than you know going on your own i guess yeah so that's a good question so the first one that we bought we purchased was kind of like I wasn't thinking about it a lot. I mean, I knew I wanted to buy an investment property, but I wasn't like 100% ready. And it was right after I had bought my current, my primary. Um, it was very soon after that. Um, but what happened for the first Oxford home is the owner that was uh, that owned the home passed away in a car accident. And so Oxford Home reached out to a partner of mine and was like, "Hey, we we need." Um, we need someone to buy this home that wants to keep it as an Oxford home because we don't want it to be converted to a primary because we don't want to displace all, all we don't have we don't have a spot for to move these guys. Um, so it was really fast, you know. We had to buy it like really quickly, um, 
and from a capital perspective, it, it's just easier, you know, to work with a partner. Um, so my, my friend was like, Hey, you want to, you want to go in on this? And, um, we don't really have time to think about it, but <laughs> I mean, rates, rates were really good at the time. And it's, it's like, uh, I was just like, okay, let, it looks good on paper. And so we, I went, I mean, we went for it. Um, and then, then like half a year, a year later, um, something came up in South Dakota and it was ki ki kind of the same thing. What happened was they were like, hey, we really, and we didn't choose South Dakota. It was more like Oxford Homes, like, hey, we need investors in South Dakota really bad. There's like a huge need for halfway homes there. Um, can you guys please like buy a, a couple? Um, we're just like, uh, what's in South Dakota? <laughs> <laughs> like, um, yeah, we, I mean, I've never been out there. We've never checked it out. And, and we, but we, on paper, it looked good. And in the last 10 years, the, the market had doubled value wise. And so we're like, well, that's kind of similar to Portland. I mean, it looks okay on paper. You know, this one that we've had hasn't required any maintenance. I mean, we're not having to actively manage it. So I guess we'll try for it. And so for me, yeah, the, the point of the partnership is, well, there's a lot of things going on there. Like, so in that partnership, he finds the deals, um, you know, he has the network and he, and he finds the deals and he has, and capital. And, um, so then on my end, I mean, we're splitting the capital, the initial investment, we go in 50, 50, but then on my end, I do the mortgage, um, and he negotiates the contract so that there's that too. There's that kind of natural partnership where I do the, the finance part. You know, I like, I have, I have the, I set up the bank account and, and, and put the mortgages on auto pay or whatever. Um, so there's, there's that mechanical part, but I, I mean, I think the biggest reason to partner is just to barrier of entry, to lower your barrier of entry. Um, but yeah, I mean, of course, partnership can be hard. It can be, or it can, or it can be easier. I mean, it just depends on, you know, it can make things, some things easier and it can make some things harder, I guess. But I think the biggest boon for sure is just being able to get in with less, with less capital. Okay. And then jumping to South Dakota, like, you know, how was your first experience with going out of state? Like, how did you feel about that? Cause it's so far away. You haven't seen it. You can't go check up on it. Like, how do you feel about out of state? Yeah. I mean, so far it's been really, really good. I mean, I mean, there was, there's been some minor issues and I'm always just like, okay, yeah, get it fixed. Send me a quote or just text it. And, um, and she's like, okay. And then she's sending me a bill and then pays a little bit less for rent the month. So it hasn't been like, it's been minor stuff. Um, but you know, you gotta have put your trust in a good professional, right? You gotta have a, a good agent that can, that you can talk to that will be able to like look at a house and be like, well, this is going to have some problems or, you know, this it's the bones are good. It's, it's fine. You know, it's fine for this or, um, so I think that's, that's key is being able to like trust an agent. And it also helps to have like gone through the process a few times. Mm -hmm. Um, but really ultimately like, what are you buying? You're buying a single family home, which is, to me, in my mind, the most liquid thing in real estate, and it's all, and it's the most valuable too, because it's the most desirable. Um, so the worst thing is going to happen is that um, you'll have to do repairs on it, and you might not be able to sell it really rapidly. But generally speaking, it's it's you know the most desirable, the most in demand asset. So for me, the risk of buying a single family home is is pretty low. 
Yeah, yeah. Um, unless you buy something that's like terrible foundation or something like that, and then you can't sell it or, or you know. But look at the inspection report. <laughs> yeah. So for this home in South Dakota, did Oxford, uh, Oxford Homes? Right? Yeah. Did they line it up for you, saying that we'll definitely make this? Yeah. In Oxford Homes. Yeah. You purchased it. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, we basically have had a, an agreement with them. Did you have a rent number established before even yeah, buying them? Yeah, and and we had a rent step. We had a rent number established too. So we kind of we knew like we were going to cash flow eight hundred dollars a month. Yeah. Wow. That's awesome. Okay. No, that's great. Uh, yeah, and then just jumping back into kind of the start of your career, I know you've had a really interesting career path. Can you kind of get into that? Because you know, it's only it's only interesting because everybody loves cooking. So <laughs> no, 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 everyone loves eating. Oh, that's true. Everyone loves eating. That's that's and watching people cook. Yeah, cooking is glamorous. Like, you know, I love watching Chef and all those things. So you know. yeah, it's so funny that like yeah, cooking and and chefing has become glamorous. I, I mean, it it sort of was to the ex not as the extent it was now as it is now um you know like everyone else i sort of read that no reservation or, i mean not no reservations but i read anthony bourdain stuff and i got into cooking in like in college um and really partially for uh, well one i didn't know what i wanted to do after i graduated i i went to a liberal arts school a small liberal arts school in iowa called grinnell college and yeah i had no idea what i wanted to do after i graduated uh, I majored in Chinese and anthropology. I did double major, neither of which are like readily employable. And I mean, I could have gone and work worked for a corporation in China, probably, um, like work for an American corporation in, in China. And I have some friends that ended up doing that, and it worked out really well. But um, it, I, you know, I, I after living in China for a year, I was like, oh, I want to be home. I want to, I want to be around my family, um, and. I, I had always liked cooking. Like in college, I got into it because, like you said, I, I enjoy eating. <laughs> and, I, you know, I was on a budget then, too. So I was like, well, I, I got to learn how to cook if I want to eat. So I, I did that in college. I Eventually, I worked at a, a, the local, like, nice restaurant there, the, the Frenchie one. Um, I, did a, I did an externship there, and he had me, like, call it his bills for a few a lot of the time he was like, all right, you go, I'm going to disabuse you of this notion that you want to open a restaurant because it's a terrible idea. And, and but, um, so I worked with him for a while and, and learned all the, all the basics. Um, we can name drop, right? You worked at Paley's place, right? Yeah. So that was after, so after that, I went to culinary school he, here in Portland. So after, after college, after still not knowing what I, did, I wanted to do, I was like, all right, I'm going to open a restaurant. Right. So I went to culinary school, worked at Paley's which is where I was making like $11, $12 an hour. Um, and uh, yeah, I was there for three three years and then I took a chef position at, at DOC. So I really, I mean, in six years, I didn't bounce around a ton. I really only worked at two restaurants. And I got to that point in my career where it was like, well, there's, there's no more verticality. Um, you know, I could, I guess I could go like work at a golf course or something like that or a hotel. Um, but I was sort of in that fine dining mindset, which is, you know, you're kind of like in the restaurant world, it, it's like you want to you know, be be artistic, right? You want to be yeah. creative. You want to be coming up with new dishes um, and you want to be providing an experience for people. Uh, and, and and so for me, that's that's what I was really into. And, and uh, when I tried to convert that into like the next level 
of ownership, it was it was really hard to resolve the artistry and the the business. Um, because I did find a restaurant that was semi-successful. It was, I mean, it was successful. And more importantly, you could own the real estate underneath and the seller was willing to sell. Um, and the owner was willing to sell. And so what I did is like, my dad's like, oh, you better go like talk to someone from SCORE, which is, have you, I don't know if you guys heard of that, but no. it's, a, it's a great, I'm not even sure what the acronym stands for, but they're small business. It's a, it's a, like I think it's a nationwide nonprofit where you can get advice on on business, um, and all, all these guys are like re- guys and gals are retired um, business runners, and they'll just kind of like you know for for people that have no idea they'll help you look at the books and and figure out like okay this makes sense this doesn't make sense they'll just they'll meet with you so I got all the finances went over all the paperwork with him and he's like well. Yeah, I mean, this is this is this business is profitable. Like, it does make money. Uh, you're going to be working there. Uh, it makes money because you know you're the owners working there full time. Uh, this is what your margins are. Uh, I mean, ten percent on a on a <laughs> good year, you know. Um, but it it, it just kind of made me realize, like, you know, that it, it it's cool. It looks good. I could own the restaurant. Could make a living doing that have some real estate to retire on. But what I saw was just that long-term problem of wanting to spend time with the family, right? And working nights and evenings and weekends and holidays is how you keep the rest. I mean, that's when you get the most business in the restaurant world. That's, you know, I think the the day after Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving, Christmas Eve are like the the three busiest days of the year in, in fine dining, uh, you know, Valentine's day, of course, like, you know, mother's day, whatever, all those, all those holidays where you want to be with your family just yeah. are just crazy. And, and, you know, I, I could see long-term like not being able to, like I, you know, could never do bath time with kids and, and that type of stuff. And I was like, eh, maybe like, I love cooking, but maybe that's not the only thing that I could do, uh, to make a living. Right. Yeah. Uh, so I, so I, yeah, I did, like I was saying, I crunched the numbers. It didn't look perfect to me. And I'd always been interested in finance. And I had a long-term plan of building a uh, a portfolio of, of passive income uh, and through real estate. And so I was like, well, why don't I like learn how to do this and do it for myself and do it for my friends and family? Because uh, I, I looked at like becoming a realtor and a financial advisor uh, and I, and I kind of weighed in the pros and cons of all of those. Um, and I thought, well, l- let me try this one because this is what my plan is. And I had a good experience getting my mortgage with a colleague of mine now that's now a colleague. So I, I just reached out to her and I was like, Hey, how does this, <laughs> like, how does this job work? I've never even heard, I never really knew about it until I got my mortgage and I never tell you about it in school or anything. Uh, and she's like, well, why don't you come on as assistant? So I worked for her for about six months and then just kind of slowly built a pipe from there. Awesome. Awesome. One of the things I took away from everything you shared, Jordan, and thank you for giving us the story. Um, you know, nobody succeeds alone. You know, uh, we're all in this together. And, and when you're clear about, you know, what why you're doing it, like to, to spend time with the family, like I heard you say, 
um, you know, everything else falls in place, especially when you find the right people. If you don't know the right people, go out and seek those people. Um, yeah, I didn't, I didn't know a single person in real estate. Yeah. Like I didn't yeah. have a single, I had no family, no, no friends in real estate. Um, I, I mean, I just reached out to my, our realtor and I reached out to, um, my lender mm-hmm. and that's how, and then it just went from there. Yeah. I mean, I'll say that. I mean, everybody in this room, there's no straight line success path for real estate. We all started doing different things. Like, you know, I've had two careers prior to real estate. Mm-hmm. You know, I know, you You know, like it's it's a, you know, a snaking path. And it, sometimes you just happen to meet the right person who gets you to think in a different way towards moving towards this direction. Well, and it's, it's interesting because like people kind of know what a, a realtor is a little bit more, I think, than what a, what a loan officer is. Because, I mean, realtors are just better at advertising to the consumer in general, right? They're better at reality shows. Yeah. Can you imagine that? (laughs) Yeah. That might be a good riff, though. We could do a (laughs) spinoff. Yeah. Just a picture of us. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But uh, no, it's, uh, yeah, it's funny because, yeah, being like, People still don't really. They ask me what I do, and then they're like, "Oh, okay. oh, you used to cook, though." Like, tell me about <laughs> yeah, that. Yeah, that's, <laughs> I guess it's really hard to sell that you're crunching these numbers for them. That you know, your rate is this certain percentage, and this is your mortgage. Like, it's it's not the sexiest thing in the world. Well, yeah, I mean, they just they assume that it's like, oh, I just you know, it, banks lending me money, and that's what's going to use to buy the house. But um, I mean, there's a little. I'd like to think that there's a little bit more to it than that. I, in my opinion, what I, lo- what I love about the job is that I, what I've really learned is more than anything is how people, besides building relationships and, and, and talk and communication skills and, and, and marketing, what I've really learned is, is how people make their money. When you have a diverse client set, it's really interesting to see like how people make and save money. Like, I, I learned how to invest from some of my clients just by like reviewing their tax returns and, and talking with them uh, because I thought it was super interesting. I was like, because I was looking at one guy's capital gains and they had just gone up crazy in the last couple of years. And he was an executive at Microsoft and we just started casually talking about it. But it's, it's just, it's, it's very, it's fun to like unravel that mystery um, and see what it actually looks like on paper. Uh, because everyone, you know, makes money in different ways, especially self-employed folks. It's, it's very interesting. Yeah. I would like to give you kudos too, because a big part of, you know, his role as a, as a lender or loan officer, uh, you know, really important for that, especially the first time buyer client, you know, buying a home is a big, scary thing, or even an investment property. Uh, when you're going through that underwriting process, there's a lot, you know, we, we don't understand or know. You know, and so having a uh, having a person who really does take the extra time to really explain and educate, you know, um, the client is ultra important because, you know, I've also seen uh, had some you know loan officers I've worked with, you know, not by choice, but we we have to work. Sure. With, we got to play together. Yep. And I can see the differences for sure, Jordan. And you know, 
our clients, but I, I, I don't even know what to do. I don't know what any of this, this means. How much money am I even supposed to have ready? I don't even know. Like, <laughs> those are some scary but common things I have heard and seen. I know that whenever I work with a client who's working with Jordan, they're just telling me how so great you are and about spending that time and teaching them, educating them, because that's how we move the needle and how we help other people realize what else they can do. Yeah, and I, I would also like to give kudos to you, Jordan. Um, just thinking creatively, because I think any mortgage lender can put in the numbers into a computer and spit out, you know, here's your rate, here's what your mortgage is going to be. But finding creative solutions for my clients, like I think that is the biggest value. Like if you could sell that, I mean, obviously you do, because we always keep referring you people. Like that's the biggest value for my clients, because you know, like you know, these big box mortgage chains, they can go to Rocket, was it Rocket Mortgage, and go get a. Um, you know, go get a loan, but they're not going to get that personal service right. and what they need to do and how they need to prepare for getting the, you know, the loan for the house. Yeah. And it's interesting. Like a, a lot of the job is too, is just kind of like getting people to send you documents. Right. And some people are just like, yeah, sure. No problem. Some people are like, why don't, you know, why do I have to do that? And it really helps. I think in, at least in my experiences to just, you know, talk to them about it and like, well, here's why I need this. And, and I know it doesn't make sense, but this is what the, this is how the bank looks at it. And, and for some people that's like, that's all that, that's what they really need. You know, they just, <laughs> I mean, it, it's like when you're, you know, showing homes and explaining, or you're talking to somebody about why, why you need to list it for a certain amount and why that, or why you can't make an offer for X amount. Um, because in their mind, they've got something in their mind that how it is, but that's not, that's not how, the other other side's going to see it. That's not how the underwriter's going to see it, right? Right, right. Awesome. Well, thank you for taking us on this journey with you and sharing with us. Um, Stephen, any other questions you want to ask? No, I mean, I, well, as mentioned, you know, Jordan is the regular co-host. But uh, if, you, if you're listening to us for the first time, Jordan, how can people find you? Uh, sure, yeah. So you can – I'm Jordan at jordanleemortgage.com. And yeah, if you just Google Jordan Lee Mortgage, you'll find my, you'll find my website, which has a bunch of it has our podcast on it, yep. and it has all the contact information there, and and Instagram as well. Yeah, be sure to like uh, and subscribe to the podcast if you haven't done so already. You can find us on YouTube, Spotify, and where else, Stephen? Acast. Oh yeah, yeah, that's our that's <laughs> our podcast shows. But yeah, YouTube, Spotify, and yeah, Portland Real Estate Investing Podcast. Yeah, awesome. Okay. Thanks guys. Great. Thanks everyone. Thanks for tuning in to the Realized Gains podcast. If you have any questions for our co-hosts or guests, don't hesitate to reach out. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, or at jordanleemortgage.com.